friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Today, we have a great lineup as we try to do every week. We have with us Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. That's an amazing organization that I happen to be a part of, even though I'm not an OBGYN, I'm a radiologist. We're going to talk to her about chemical abortion, which there was a great shift in chemical abortion in December when the FDA got rid of the, the, the special regulations around Mifeprex, the drug involved in chemical abortion, a drug which is very dangerous. And uh, due to political pressures, the FDA has has gotten rid of the special regulations around it that were put in place to keep women safe. Although never children, of course, because chemical abortion always results in a dead baby. But first, we turn to Jessica Hooten-Wilson. She's a professor of humanities and classical education at the University of Dallas. She has two books coming out next year, and she's here to give us a sneak peek of both of them and also the benefit of her very intelligent mind and her expansive vision all about the classics, and wonderful literature. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me on. So, Jessica, I have this impression of your work as as someone who has a way of explaining how how literature, how the novel, can deepen for us our understanding of of the great truths, and especially of the great Christian truths. Is is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny to hear someone describe your work like it's this thing outside of you. It's kind of like when people talk about the tradition, like it's a, a handful of books you wrap up in a package and just mm-hmm. pass to the next person. And for me, it's just an outgrowth of I've always loved stories since I was a kid, and I've always been formed by them and shaped by them in my house. And so I've been sharing that passion in all the different forms that I can by writing about it, speaking about it, sharing it in a classroom. So it's really just about who I am as a person. And Jessica, right before we got on the phone on this on on this uh, interview, I was searching desperately through a Chester one of my Chesterton books. I think it's an orthodoxy where uh, Chesterton describes the novel as a Christian thing that it it happens because Christianity is romantic. It, there's because romance exists in Christianity, and then when that romance that Christian romance is written down, what it results in is a novel. Now I'm not asking you to tell me where where that what page that is in orthodoxy. I don't know if that <laughs> if you remember reading something like that. But does that make sense to you? Well, I don't know exactly where Chesterton would be talking about that, but the the idea of the stories that are found in Chesterton, right? That the idea of the the ways that he came to know Christianity was through story. 
Mm-hmm. And so even orthodoxy, he, felt, he says this, uh, this is a memoir that is your, it's not a normal memoir because it's essentially also an argument, but it's not a normal argument. And he, he interrelates those things in a way that imitates what scripture itself is doing. It's a giant story that's also revealing to you the truth that you could actually write into claims, but it's telling you knowledge about the world and the story. And so all of Christianity is just this great, massive story through which to see our reality. And so then every story that's responding to that is either true or false or good or beautiful based on that master story that's that's written into creation. Oh, that's a lovely way to th- think about that. Why do you think that people, uh, men and women, do we are we able to to approach these great truths more easily through through novels? than we are maybe through um, through through metaphysical works, or what do you think? Well, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in The Discarded Image, in which he, he says that the medieval thought of a person in three concentric circles, the outer circle of a person was the imagination. The next level in was the intellect, and the middle was the will. So you first began by how do you see things, and then your intellect can analyze how you see those things. But first, it's just the senses. It's it's the way you approach the whole world by how you see and hear. I mean, that's why all through scripture it is, they have eyes that do not see, they have ears that do not hear. We have to have this imagination that is porous, that allows us to, to see and hear reality as it is. And then we can analyze it and didactically talk about it. I and mean, this is the role of literary critics, right? You, you have the great stories that people read, and then you kind of walk people through what it is that they've read and that they can draw from. So I think the imagination is the first access point. It's the one that all of us know from the time we're children. It's the one that shapes who we are and how we have a vision of things. Jessica, you've got two books coming out next year, and we want to get to both of them. But let's start with The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. I'm especially really interested in this because I come from a great books background, um, but but St. John's College, so it was secular. And so I'm always, I'm very interested in that sort of great books approach um, when it comes to, you know, more things that hint to the spiritual and Mm -hmm. Uh, moral development as a Christian. And so this book really calls us to be the best versions of ourselves. And you pull from lots of different literature, but one of the books you um, pull from is Death Comes for for the Archbishop from Willa Cather. And can you tell us more about this especially? Sure. So I tried to consider what are those virtues that don't fit easily into an American identity um, as I've grown up with it, and the, the conflation, I think, so much between our Christian identity and the American identity. And so there's a lot of that we've inherited that we're really comfortable with about being kind to one another. So I tried to look at virtues that we're not comfortable, but they're still scriptural, and they need to then override um, some of our sensibilities. So one of that being our lack of comfort with death, whereas the Christian tradition is rooted in, like, memento mori. Mm -hmm. going to die and i think it's important for us as we make decisions about what the good life is to always have that mortality in front of us right but then of course also the immortality afterwards like we are souls that will not die but we are creatures in this certain state right now that will and um, to always be reflecting on that so that we can be making these choices for how we're supposed to live 
And I think, so death comes for the Archbishop, for example. Um, you have this death comes, so it sounds like it's going to be this, like, mystery story, and it sounds like it's going to be, like, really exciting, and yet he doesn't die until the very end of the story. It's really just about a good life. What is a good life? But she puts death in front of you from the moment you open the book. And so you're thinking about what the good life is always with that end of death registering in your in your mind. Yeah, I really like that because it reminds me actually of one of my tutors who is one of the sort of old school guys at St. John's that came from um, the University of Chicago. He always just said, you know, the job of St. John's College is to make you better human beings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so even in that secular sense, there was that classical idea of what these books were supposed to do for yes, you yes, and that's absolutely. exactly what you're doing but in this christian context i just i'm really I'm really excited about it personally <laughs> i think our viewers will be too oh um, thank you yeah it's so much of my heart just poured into it because i i think this is the point of life and um for me as a christian you know what does it mean to be a human being you can't understand without the human one right without mm-hmm. the sense of god at the center of that conversation no absolutely my experience has been that in that in novels is when i when i touch most deeply and when i I, when I feel that I grasp deep spiritual truths that affect me and, and they keep affecting me and they, they stick with me and, they, 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 and I mull over them because they come clothed in, in personalities and because they come clothed in drama and human interaction or at least very real on the page. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned virtues that we have discarded. And is that the way your book is arranged about different virtues? Because you mentioned the virtue of uh, remembering that our life is finite, that death comes for all of us. And another virtue that I think of all the time that we do encounter in novels, but we don't in, uh, as a good thing, but we don't often encounter it in, in, in our modern world is a virtue of obedience. Is there one that is there one of one of your uh, topics that you cover the virtue of obedience? Oh, no, but I wish I would have talked to you before I wrote this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the next then. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to have to get on that. You know, it's funny when I went through all the different virtues, like there were so many that I thought, okay, also I would need to write about this. I would need to write about, um, you know, the Christian respect for age, both for children and, and the elderly is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot that we need to. So there were all these virtues that I kept thinking, these are things that are particular to Christianity. Um, but the ones that the ones that I forefronted for me were ones that came from books that I've just been teaching for years and loving. And in a sense, I think that obedience underlies all of it, but it's an obedience of the created order. You know, um, submit, maybe submission is a better way of, of referring to it the way that I write about it is submitting to how you were made versus trying to make yourself. Realizing that there's an author of your story versus trying to write your own story. And yeah. so in that sense, I guess there is a submission to the authority that is the author of your life. Wow, that's very pregnant with meaning nowadays, Jessica. Uh, submitting to the way you were made. I can, that sort of, that rings like a, hear, a huge loud bell in my head, considering <laughs> what we're confront, confronting these days in, in human anthropology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are very into autonomy. Uh, you know, there's all these books. I mean, my first book was against this idea of the autonomous self, the authority of the autonomous self, and instead recognizing that our limitations could be good things. I mean, this is a lot of the Catholic writers of the 20th century wrote about limitation in a beautiful way and instead of a negative way. And our current culture is all about conquering the limitations, exceeding the limitations, you know, living the impossible dream instead of recognizing limitations are a key to discernment. We've lost. If we don't see our limitations as guiding us toward a certain path, that's why we feel restless and directionless. We're not acknowledging those limitations as gates 
that are moving us towards the right doors. And isn't that sense of total autonomy, complete individuality, don't you think that that, is, that creates terrible anxiety in people? Like the, oh, the, the kind absolutely. The kind we see in, in when you're confronted by a long menu at a restaurant, several yeah. pages menu, <laughs> and you say, what yeah. in the world? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. You know, Walker Percy talks about this a lot in his own novels. His novels are the existential self, just in complete crisis, where you, you have no idea what road to take. You don't know that you're even a pilgrim on a road. You're just lost in the wilderness because you don't recognize the road. And I have a friend who wrote a book, I love the title, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble. And that title just kind of sums up the faith, right? Of course, it comes from scripture. But you're not your own. You belong to someone else. And once you admit that fact, suddenly the road, you know, each step may be a little bit more light on it. And it may be a little bit more clear the direction you're supposed to go. Yeah. Now, I mean, even to sometimes all this cancel culture going on and to even say that there is is a road or, you know, any sort of reference to teleology of a human being, um, it's really easy to become concern, consumed with false heroes and narratives. Mm-hmm. And and we have these literary traditions. I know that you did a really great job sticking up for Flannery O'Connor when that was going, going down. But, how, I mean, you see this in your students. What, what do these books and these literary traditions do that can bring, how do they bring hearts and minds and souls and all that back to these more transcendental mm-hmm. uh, ideas of what of human flourishing. So one of the things that I used to teach for first year seminars for undergrads was a course that I said, you know, writing your own story. So I, I, I labeled it the way that it really drew Gen Z and millennials into mm-hmm. the conversation. <laughs> but, it, but what we started with was Augustine confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead it was learning what they eventually learned and covered in the course of reading confessions and then surprised by joy lewis is that god is writing their lives they couldn't decide what century they were born in they didn't get to decide their gender they didn't get to decide who their parents were they didn't get to decide who their family members were they didn't get to decide what country they were born in like and suddenly they realized that trying to write the story of their lives all the things that god made the decisions already for them <laughs> Yeah, and I think that stepping into this tradition of people trying to look at their lives this way, like they get to see that all of history is a story that started way before them that they're now participating in, and when their lives end, the story isn't over. There's another story that continues beyond them, and so getting to see the tradition as this living thing in which, yes, their story has a part to play, but it's not the grand finale. It's just part of this very long story that God's telling, and I think the tradition reminds you of that. You get to meet all of these people that have come before you, and there's just millions of them. And there's so many stories that are told, and then there are those that are untold that they get to discover. And I think that's a great part of this living tradition, this understanding of it as being something dynamic that you're stepping into and engaging with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host, Lee Sneed. And we have Professor Jessica Houghton-Wilson, with us. She's from the University of Dallas, and she's discussing two great books that she has written. The second one is called Learning the Good Life, Wisdom from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. You know, talk, listening to you talk, Jessica, about these students that you're teaching and, and you direct them to where they are standing in relationship to their ancestral past, Who, why they're standing in a certain place and time, a result of certain uh, genetic and uh, familial acts that, that result in them, and you're able to direct them into into thinking of how how wildly adventurous that is to think of yourself yeah. as 
as a product of, of fabulous people that have come before and you're living this great story. Yes. That seems to me very romantic and much more romantic than to think of yourself as starting from scratch every time. Like every human being starts from scratch, starts at zero. Is right. that how is that how your how your students were perceiving that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way you're talking about it does sound like Chesterton. It's echoes of Chesterton. You know, the excitement for the two-year-old Chesterton, right? You know, that the door open. But imagine a world in which there are no doors because you have to create them to make them. And then when you make them, you already know what's behind them. The world is a, is a lot less enlivening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot less excitement when there's no mystery, when you're the only person involved in making the world. And so I love Chesterton's idea of these opening these doors, seeing what's around the corner. It's it's life as a discovery. It's uh, what Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity, right? I mean, it's this wonderful path in which you, you try to follow those who came before you, but they came before you. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. this mysterious, uh, paradoxical reality where, where anything can happen and, and yet the more you step on the right stones you get to a greater destination you know than when you fall on your way and uh, so I think it's I love thinking of reality in that sense with with that mystery and that adventure some people are afraid to pick up novels some good Christians some people people who are trying to be careful of what they read because it might it might lead them down bad paths or wrong ways of thought and I'm I'm the first one to say that I'm not I'm not making fun of that because I'm very careful what I ingest mm-hmm. right, right. In, in literature and movies and all that what would you say to people like that who want to who want to deepen themselves d- deepen their understanding in, of literature and, and drink from you know the founts of literature but without uh, getting themselves sort of in the mire of things Amit Majmudar wrote this poem called Reading it is beautiful it's dedicated to Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. The reason, the reason I love it as a way of starting with this question is he, he talks about, I stand before books as I stand before the night sky. And the books are these infinities that are all demanding to be explored, but I don't have a map and I don't have a guide. Then the blind librarian comes and he takes my hand and I suddenly feel secure knowing where to look and all the stars open into suns. And it, so it's this, we've lost the understanding of reading as a communal activity. And that's one of the reasons I think that it frightens people because you don't know what book to choose. It, you know, like you said a second ago with the limitless list of options. And so you're afraid to, to choose a book. You're afraid to ask because is it, isn't it supposed to be about preference? Isn't it supposed to be about taste and what you enjoy and what you prefer? But it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, reading for thousands of years was about someone showing you what to read, telling you what to read, how to read, telling you how to read. Most of education was telling you how to read and how to engage with the text. And so we've lost this sense that reading should be about the masters, those who have loved the books, who know which books to read, helping the novices walk through that process so that eventually the novices then become the masters for others. I think we don't need to be afraid if we're considering reading that way. It should not be this isolating, is this for my own pleasure? But if it's for my own pleasure, are my pleasures going to lead me awry? And instead consider reading with guides and reading with others and reading in community and looking for that advice for how to read well. And I love this idea of librarian, like Beatrice. It's like, so beautiful. Th- that poem, it's beautiful. It's funny. I have a soft spot for Borges because my dad was an English professor and 
one of his treasured possessions was a photograph of Borges uh, desk lecturing in his class. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. It was like so a cool. yeah, really good deal. Yeah. Um, so cool. So, and he actually was sort of like my guide through books before I got to St. John's. He was always handing me things to read and things he thought were, you know, appropriate. And I remember things like The Awakening and, yes. you know, just things like that when you're a teenage girl. It's just like, oh, this whole world out there. And of course, yes. you know, the Lost Generation writers, of course, appeal to you. And so I, I felt ready and not ready for St. John's. But because you start off with day anima, and I'm like, what did I do? This is in English. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you don't, but you don't just include literature. In, in your books, you, you do the whole canon and you bring it. And what I really like, actually, for me, as I've become, well, great book speak, right? A more advanced student, even though I'm not technically a student anymore. And I'm allowed to read outside resources and read the letters of Flannery O'Connor and mm-hmm. realize and sort of read the more gossipy things about who was friends with whom and who proofread whose books. And what I find now is that I read one novel and then I re- it leads me to other books because of the references in it. I have to look that up and then I find that. And the book themselves, and obviously that works better when they're contemporaries of each other. Do you do, like, like what's the uh, plan, the layout of your book? Is it chronological or do you go by themes or how does it, how does are that help? Are talking about the scandal of holiness? We are talking about um, learning the good life. life. Learning the good life, the second one. Sorry, I should so, have said that. <laughs> My publishing life is so weird. I like have these like three or four year breaks and then I put out three books at one time. Yeah. <laughs> Learning the Good Life is chronological. The theme that kind of ties the reflections or the introductions, the exordiums of each text together is what does it mean to learn as a Christian? So this goes back to the idea of you know, the tradition, the practices mm-hmm. of piety by which to approach a text. Because if you approach text as a minor trying to pull whatever gems you think are worthwhile. Like you could just be pulling a bunch of rocks and and dust out of uh, the text itself and not get what the text is trying to do. And so we we talk about the virtues of reading, you know, the ways of approaching text through the text themselves. So the exodium kind of shows you, it guides you. It's, it's that librarian that says, like, look here. And then you read the excerpt following it, and then there's discussion questions. And so we collected professors across the country from all different traditions, and even some of my friends who are teachers but who are not in the university system, and uh, asked them, like, what text you know, if, if the world was ending, what is the small mm. excerpt that you want to make sure the next generation doesn't lose? And so, and I wanted, I wanted the book to be a lot more expansive than I think a lot of these readers have been in the past. We, we've had um, probably more of a canon that had this majority, um, you know, very male, white, Western, mm-hmm. just at the heart of things, because that was what we were used to and that was passed down to us. But the more that I've been in graduate school and out of grad, grad school and getting to hear some of these voices I had never heard before, yeah. and you know, discovering Marjorie Kemp and discovering Julian of Norwich and discovering Perpetua and Testimony, and these are things I just never had access to. And so we made sure that we were showing everyone that was at the table, right, and um, trying to be as hospitable to this feast of discourse throughout the tradition as we could be. So, so the book moves all the way from I think it's like Confucius to Toni Morrison essentially. Oh I love it and I love the idea of the conversation notes because post pandemic it's exactly what everybody's wanting and is it Mm -hmm. something you could do you could pick you wouldn't have to do the whole book you could just pick a chapter to read with your friends and are they self contained? Yes absolutely and that's one of the reasons we did it too you know I have the privilege right now of traveling to lots of classical schools and mostly who I talk to are not students I'm talking to parents (laughs) 
because the parents are thinking like, I know that I should choose this education and great books for my kids, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read Homer, never read Shakespeare, and I, I cannot keep up with my child. And so this is also one of those books where you could you could do a section of it at dinner together mm-hmm. and yes. you could just enjoy reading parts of it aloud and asking questions and having dinner table conversation I mean, we very intentionally put a big table on the front of the book and showed all these friends dining around it on our cover to say like to suggest like this is what intellectual life should look like it should look like a table it should look very relaxed and enjoyable this is not an elitist thing that belongs in the academy these are the texts that that make us and that should be shaping our culture I like this, Jessica, because I think in the absence of literature, what takes the place for that kind of interaction and back and forth is politics, which is not, you know, which is can be very divisive and can cause a lot of anxiety because of, you know, if, if your guys in, in power right now or your, your, your political, whoever you think is correct. Um, I like the, I like the idea of having a book like yours as, as a point of departure for, for wonderful conversation. Well, and it's also about permanent things. You know, you don't have to feel like if you're talking about justice and Aristotle, that he's going to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, whereas if you talk about justice according to the current headline or the current political party, that has a temporary label on it, right? It's going to expire as a conversation pretty quick. So these kind of conversations will last forever, right? Your understanding of Aristotle's justice you'll return to over and over and over again. You can't finish it. I read a, right. I read a little quote from Confucius the other day by chance and I sent it to my, I have two children now who are married and it said something like it is the duty of children to give grandchildren to their parents. <laughs> And I thought, wow, what an incredibly intelligent man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was listening to Sarah this morning that was talking about if you want to be honored, honor your father, your father and mother. I thought, oh, yeah, that's I mean, that is the way that this works. Like, it's just revealing. This is how the world is, right? Mm -hmm. These things that tell us the truth. And there's so much out there to to delve into. I think that your students are very lucky, Jessica, to have you as a teacher. It sounds like you're somebody who who has a, a very big mind and a very big heart oh oh, thank you yes and i you know i i love the connection between the two to me it should be i worked at john brown university for years and i loved their motto um heart head and hand Oh, All of those go together to to make us who we are. I I really love that. And can can you tell me, all I could think of was all the different families I want to give this book to as a Christmas present. But the (laughs) publishing, the publish date isn't until the spring. Is that right? Right. Right. So, um, so Holiness is March. And then um, in May, it is uh, Learning the Good Life. And going back to your Holiness book, Jessica, why you said in March, the Holiness book? It's in March. Okay. And who, who is the focus of that book? Like, who do you, who do you envision as a, as a great uh, reader for that book? Well, you know, you were just talking about politics, and I think that's actually a good reference point, because our political culture really demands that we, we use whatever means we can towards what we think is a good end, even though it's an impermanent end, right? And so we're willing to completely adjust our motivations and our actions for anything. So I'm hoping that my book is really for the church to remind us that 
the political sphere is not the sphere that we ultimately belong to. Mm-hmm. And we might have to be, as you know, Russell Moore would say, like we might have to be defensive within that sphere to protect religious liberty. But that's only so we can reinvest in the church and go back to what it looks like as a community to strive after holiness. So my book is, is very much for the church. I'm hoping that people are going to read it in Bible studies and start bringing literature into the, their Sunday school classes. And that this is the kind of book that will replace, you know, talking about the pop lit, you know, at your local book club. Instead, maybe I can, maybe I can in part be a blind librarian and say, here are some of the books that I would recommend you read. Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect guy, Jessica. And I, I thank you. <laughs> I thank you very much for for sharing your time with us. And and we hope that, that your books will achieve great success and lead a lot of uh, hearts and minds to the truth and ultimately to God. So thank you for being with us today, Jessica. Thank you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Now we have with us Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, a wonderful organization that I am very proud to be a member of. Although I'm not an OBGYN, I'm a radiologist. We wanted to talk to Dr. Harrison about the recent relaxation of guidelines associated with Mifeprex by the FDA. This is something that's uh, politically Um, This is a political move by the FDA, sadly, to her. She happens to be an expert on on chemical abortion and its relationship to the FDA. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. You know, it was in about mid-December, and I have to admit, I wasn't paying a lot of attention because uh, Christmas was rapidly approaching, but something happened that was very big in the the landscape of of America's relationship to um, abortion, um, and especially affecting people like you, Dr. Harrison, who are on OBGYN and your relationship with your patients, and that is the big changes from the Federal Drug Administration on their regulations on chemical abortion. So I thought maybe um, you would do us the favor to walk us through what a chemical abortion is, why the FDA for so many years felt that it was necessary to heavily regulate this drug, and what the what has been what has changed, and why you think that's a problem. Well, thanks. That's an interesting story. Um, so I will start from the beginning because I followed the chemical abortion approval process since 1994, since the application was actually first made, and. What the situation with the Mifeprex approval, Mifeprex is a drug that blocks a natural hormone in a woman's body that allows her to carry a baby. That's called progesterone. So Mifeprex, Mifepristone, blocks that action of progesterone in a woman's body. And just as an aside, if you have taken Mifeprex and you change your mind about having an abortion, if you can get enough natural progesterone in your body within 72 hours, you can reverse, you can help reverse the effects of mifepristone so that you can increase the chances that your baby will survive. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we said that. Before <laughs> no, that's important public information. That's, important. <laughs> that's very important information because a lot of women, um, after they take that first pill of a, of a, of, of a process, them, and sometimes as soon as they're diagnosed uh, as being pregnant, the, that first pill is being pressed upon them uh, in right. places like Planned Parenthood. And very many times women um, take, take the first pill. I've, this is, I know this because I've talked 
to women who, who've had this experience. And by the time they get home, they've thought better of it. Maybe they find at home that there's a lot of support for the new baby that's come along that they didn't expect. Yeah. A lot yeah. of personal support for them, a lot of love, maybe from their husband or their boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they say, what have I done? So thank you for um, reminding our listeners that abortion pill reversal is a real thing. It sometimes works and it's certainly worth trying if a woman changes her mind. You're right. Good. Well, I wanted to make sure that women knew that uh, because it has to do with what you're talking about, the relaxation of the control on uh, Mifeprex, on the abortion drug. So when the abortion drug was first approved, which is a whole other story in itself, um, the FDA did require the manufacturer to do certain things, which later became known as the REMS, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. The reason that the FDA did that was to try to do what they could to mitigate, to, to lessen the risk of what is actually a dangerous drug. I mean, messing with a woman's hormones is dangerous in and of itself. But when you talk about ending a natural process, and by the way, Mifeprex doesn't treat any disease. All it does is end a pregnancy, and pregnancy is not a disease. Mm-hmm. Pregnancy is a natural process. So you've got a drug that's interfering with a natural process and also interfering with hormones all over the woman's body, any place that has receptors like her brain, her ovaries, her breasts. It's a dangerous drug. And what the FDA was attempting to do was to try to put some control on that drug and how it was used in order to try to mitigate, try to lessen some of the risk. And and Dr. Now, Harrison, um, maybe you were going to mention this already, but I don't want it to pass by unnoticed that the there are many drugs that are um, treated like this by the FDA. Drugs that have uh, particular ways that they must be used or else they're very dangerous and unsafe. Well, that's right. And, and not many. I mean, compared to all the drugs that are approved, there's only a small fraction that are considered dangerous. And Mifeprex is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the FDA recognized that. So, what we have uh, is, the, and most people don't realize this, but the FDA is under the Department of HHS, Health and Human Services, and Health and Human Services is under the administration. So whatever administration is reigning um, is who HHS answers to, and whoever leads HHS is who FDA answers to. Mm-hmm. So in the very approval of the drug at the very beginning, the Clinton administration is the one who, who c- contacted the drug manufacturer to bring Mifeprex to the United States. And they said, we're we're not going to do that because we're afraid of the risks with the drug. And uh, so what... And you mean, probably you mean legally afraid, right? Like they didn't want to be sued. Legally afraid, exactly. Exactly. They didn't want to be sued. So the drug manufacturer in France ended up giving the right to manufacture and distribute Mifeprex to Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Is that so? Uh, population, Yes. And so Planned Parenthood Federation of America Population Council didn't want the legal risk either. So they created a shell company called Danco, which has assets in the Cayman Islands, so they can't be sued. And uh, yeah, and that's who manufactures and distributes. Well, Danco doesn't manufacture anything, so Danco contracted with Walling Pharmaceuticals in China, who at that time was under sanction by the FDA for faulty 
drug manufacturing practices. But that's the that's the sort of the dirty underside of Mifeprex and its approval process. You know, Dr. Harrison, I've really looked into Mifeprex. I've written several pieces on it. I've discussed it at length, and I did not know this backstory. I'm so glad that you you told me this and our listeners. That's fascinating and so ugly. Yeah, it's kind of ugly. <laughs> well, and especially when you look at who's trying to take the restrictions off of Mifeprex, it's the very people that are financially profiting from Mifeprex. It's it's the abortion industry. You know, I called it, uh, I called Planned Parenthood one day a couple years ago, my local Planned Parenthood, the little clinic. They were charging the exact same price for a medication abortion, which basically is handing a woman two pills to put in her mouth. As for a surgical abortion, which, you know, takes all sorts of manpower and... and, and the whole thing that goes with a, with a surgical procedure, all of yeah. the material, um, and, you know, that, that costs a lot of money for Planned Parenthood to, to put on. <laughs> they charge very well for it, but they were charging the same amount for chemical abortion. So just to point out that Planned Parenthood is, uh, stands to make a lot of money by uh, switching from surgical to chemical abortion. You're right. It's a lot cheaper to have a nurse practitioner or even a nurse hand out this medicine mm-hmm. than to have... A doctor. And that is part of what our recent research has shown is that the complications, when a woman has a complication from Mifeprex abortion, it's, it's less than half of the time the abortionist is the one who handles the complication. Most of the time, women go to the ER and the ER doctor who knows, who doesn't have their medical record, who may or may not even know that they had a surgical abortion or a medical abortion, excuse me, is the one who's managing. And this is really shoddy medical care. You wouldn't get away with that in any other area of OBGYN except abortion. Wow, In it's any so other true. area, a doctor has to take responsibility for the procedures that they start, and they have to oversee the management of the complications, but not with abortion. So tell so, us, tell us, Dr. Harrison, what kind of complications are we afraid of with chemical abortion, and how did the the REMS or these uh, risk um, strategies by the FDA seek to remedy or, or avoid these complications? Okay, so the original FDA requirement was that the the woman would have to have a physical exam in a doctor's office and be given the first drug in the doctor's office after the physical exam, and this and this then the woman would have to come in two days later to find out if she even needed the second drug, and if she needed it, give the drug, be given the drug in the doctor's office. Okay. So that's the called the two person visit. Okay. Okay. So she the, had to be there personally evaluated by a physician for both parts of the chemical abortion. Yes, that was the original requirement. Now, the purpose of the first visit was because there's five concerns if you don't see a woman. One is you don't know exactly how far along that person is. So we know that if a woman takes Mifeprex and she's seven weeks pregnant, she's got about a 95% chance that the baby will abort. But if she takes it and she's 13 weeks pregnant or 14 weeks pregnant, she's got about a one out of three chance that she's going to have to have surgery, emergency surgery for hemorrhaging. (laughs) So it's really important to know how far along she is in order to give her informed consent. That has to be done by an ultrasound at that early gestational age. And, so and, an, and I, I want to explain to our listeners from my own personal experience as a radiologist, and I do feed a lot of fetal ultrasound, many women, especially young women, have no idea how pregnant they are. This is, I would almost say, more common than not. How many weeks? Yes. Women do not know how many weeks pregnant very often they are. That's, 
That's correct. And multiple studies have shown that about 50% of women have to have their due date changed based on an ultrasound. And in fact, even ACOG, as pro-abortion as they are, have a practice bulletin and consider anyone that hasn't had an ultrasound in the first trimester to be inadequately dated for their pregnancy. So it's an important issue. And by by the FDA now allowing women to get drugs in the mail without ever having a physical exam, that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue, especially the risks. But the second important thing is to make sure that the child's actually in her uterus, because we've got about 2%, maybe one out of 50, maybe a little higher of women who have the baby implanted in their tube and not in their uterus. So when the when the pregnancy is implanted in the tube, Mifeprex doesn't treat it. And what happens is the woman starts to experience pain and bleeding. And she calls the abortionist and they say, honey, that's a normal part of the Mifeprex process. Lay down and take Tylenol. And many women have died from misdiagnosed ectopic pregnancy because the symptoms of a, a Mifeprex abortion, pain and bleeding, are the exact same symptoms as uh, the uh, a rupturing ectopic pregnancy. And how deadly is a ruptured ectopic pregnancy? It's very deadly because you can lose your entire blood volume in the space of just a few minutes. And that means hemorrhaging inside. So you die from internal hemorrhaging. I have a sister-in-law who recently went through this, an ectopic pregnancy, naturally, naturally occurring, a miscarriage. And she was very close to death. And and it took her many, many weeks to recover because of the terrible loss of blood volume. It was about the most shocking and traumatic thing that our family has gone through. Yes, it's terrible. And it it, it is still a prominent cause of death in women that are pregnant. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're very blessed to have uh, Dr. Harrison with us, Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Dr. Harrison is walking us through chemical abortion why the FDA, the FDA uh, for many years was, was protecting women who took this drug by extra cautionary regulations, um, and, and now wh- why the FDA is re- taking them away and what the dangers are. So um, last month in December, the FDA succumbed to political pressure. I, I'm sure you agree with me, Dr. Harrison, that there was no medical reason to lift the extra precautions on Mifeprex. I agree with you. Yes, I agree with you. And so they succumbed to political pressure, and now they the drugs are very unregulated. So tell us just how unregulated this dangerous drug is. So currently, there's over 70 different websites where a person can go online and order this drug. And... There's no check of how far pregnant she is. There's no check of whether or not the pregnancy is in her uterus. There isn't even a check of whether it's actually the person going to take the Mifeprex. So there's been over, uh, there have been at least three stories covered by national press of men who bought Mifeprex and gave the Mifeprex to their uh, unsuspecting girlfriend to make them miscarry. It's essentially a forced abortion. And you know, I recently had to order some vet, some veterinary medicines for my dog online. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. very difficult, Dr. Harrison. They, oh. <laughs> they made me jump through hoops. I had to get a prescription. I had to, I practically had to send them, you know, proof of, of, uh, I don't know, of, of my dog, of pictures of the dog, pictures of the vet, pictures... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to buy Mifeprex, which ends the life of a child and may end the life of a woman online right. than veterinary drugs, I suppose. Yes, that's correct. And and there's no regulation to it. The FDA has not done what it would have done in any other circumstance where a 
uh, dangerous medicine is being used um, in dangerous ways, the FDA would have pulled the drug. So it's basically FDA, now without it's it's without prescription like Tylenol, basically. You still have to have a prescription if well, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> the The fact is that you can order it online without any kind of a prescription. Okay. You, you can't you can do that. It's possible. That's not what the FDA has approved. The FDA has approved the uh, dispensing online by abortion clinics. They've approved telemedicine dispensing without a visit. That's dangerous. Um, but it, it has been possible to get abortion drugs online, which is also really dangerous. And are those websites violating FDA rules and the FDA is looking the other way? Absolutely. They're completely violating FDA rules, and the FDA has no way to regulate them. So when a dangerous drug is being used in dangerous ways and women are being harmed, the FDA should have pulled the drug. And in any other circumstance, they would have pulled the drug. I mean, you, you know of FDA um, pulling drugs for lesser complications than what Mifeprex has resulted in. We, we did a study of all of the adverse event reports that were submitted to the FDA. There's 3,000 severe or life-threatening or deaths, uh, adverse event reports submitted to the FDA. And that's just what the FDA shared with us. We've subsequently found out that the FDA had almost double that number, and they only shared half of the adverse event reports that we requested by FOIA, by Freedom of Information Act. What about the, age of, what about the age of the patient? What does the FDA say about girls accessing this drug? It's, it's allowed at any gestational age. The FDA has not put a gestational age requirement. And in fact, in their original approval, without any explanation, they waived the requirement for pediatric testing. Really? So, yes. So there's no uh, gestational. Uh, I'm sorry. Gestational age. You asked gestational age and I answered the age of the patient. The gestational age requirement, the FDA changed from seven weeks or less and then in 2016, they allowed it up to 10 weeks. But now, without knowing what the gestational age is, because there's no ultrasound, there's no in-person visit, women can be using it at gestational ages far beyond that. And when you get to gestational ages in the second trimester after 13 weeks, you're talking a one out of three failure rate, a 33% or more need for surgical completion. And that's something that the websites aren't telling and Planned Parenthood is likely not telling patients their risk increases as the gestational age increases. So let me explain that for our listeners who may not understand. So a, a woman takes the first pill, um, she's past 10 or 12 or 13 weeks, and the baby dies but remains inside of her. And that's a very dangerous situation, correct? So she would need at that point to complete the procedure through surgery. Not if, not only if the baby dies and is retained, but even if the baby passes, but fragments of the placenta are retained. Mm -hmm. And in, and in fact, even in the situation where there's no placenta, the mifeprex, the, the abortion drug, interferes with the ability of the uterus to stop bleeding. It interferes with the spiral artery contraction. So you, you can get massive hemorrhage. And I've, I've reviewed adverse event reports of women who have had 10 units of blood transfused. <laughs> That's the kind of hemorrhage that you get with major motor vehicle accidents. And this is the kind of hemorrhaging that can happen, especially as the woman increases in gestational age because there's more places in the uterus because it's bigger, 
more places to bleed from. She has a greater and greater risk of hemorrhage. Here's what I'm afraid of. You have a situation now where the culture is pushing chemical abortion. Um, we are not hearing about the side of the, the complications. The, you know, the, the FDA unregulating it is a signal to everybody that it's a very safe drug, that that's how they should use it. And now we're going to have young women, inexperienced young women, imagine 16-year-olds, 14-year-olds, uh, 20-year-olds uh, by themselves hemorrhaging in a bathroom alone, maybe not with a friend near them to take him to the hospital. I mean, I just the thought of that just makes me, it just shivers my heart to think of all these poor young women being led down this path. Well, I agree. And the whole uh, complicity of the media with a false narrative, Mifeprex is not a safe drug. And it's not pop a pill and poof, the pregnancy's gone. This is a really difficult procedure, and it's forcing the separation of the baby at a time when the baby isn't naturally designed to separate. So it's painful, it's long, and it's dangerous. And there's there's three other problems that we haven't even touched on, which are really important. Well, if we're almost woman, out of time, Dr. Oh, Harrison, okay. but if you could tell me, I would really like to hear them before we finish. Sure. If a woman is Rh negative and she does not receive Rogam, she can become Rh sensitized. And then she's at great risk of future miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And if a woman is just getting this drug online, you have no idea whether or not she has been screened for sex trafficking and abuse. There's no way to screen her for sex trafficking and abuse via a telemedicine visit because there's no way of controlling who's present in the room. So this is enabling sex traffickers and abusers to to sure. do their to ply their trade. There's another thing I thought of is that if people are ordering them online, no one's regulating these online companies. They could be ordering anything of any dosage. There's no way to well, regulate what, what you're actually receiving in the mail. There was a study that looked exactly at that problem and found that a large number of the pills were uh, arrived crushed or there were no, uh, there was, uh, half of them were gone, missing. So you can't, you can't at all control. There's no way to control, quality control what they're actually getting. Well, this is terrible news to start our year on, <laughs> Dr. Harrison. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I want to thank you for telling us this because all of us you know young people, we know some of us are young people and, and we need to be looking out for each other, looking out for young women and, uh, and, and protecting them from, from a very, from a very ugly reality of uh, chemical abortion and the way it's been pushed on the unsuspecting women of America. So thank you for doing this yeah. for us, Dr. Harrison. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when he will speak to us about a few of the central things we're going to need to live a good and holy Lent, which begins in just three days on Ash Wednesday. Lent is a spiritual boot camp in which we strive with God's help to become more and more like Christ. Jesus tells us in this Sunday's Gospel, No disciple is superior to the teacher, but when fully trained, every disciple will be like his teacher. Lent provides the training for us to become like Jesus. 
Just as he went to the desert for 40 days to pray, so we make the commitment to improve the quality, and for most of us, quantity of our prayer time. Just as Jesus fasted so much, the devil's first temptation to him was to try to have him transform stones into bread. So we take on the spiritual discipline of fasting, which helps us to say yes to God through learning to say no to sin by training us to say no to our appetite, even for food and drink. Just as Jesus generally gave everything down to the last drop of his blood, so in Lent we seek to imitate his merciful love, giving of ourselves, our time, our gifts, and our material resources to those who are in need. The main purpose of Lent is to become like the praying, fasting, and almsgiving Jesus. And Jesus seeks to give us that training so that we can become like him, our teacher. He wants us, however, to make a commitment to receive that training, a dedication similar to how rookies approach training camp, 18-year-olds approach boot camp for the Marines, or hard-working students approach exam period. Lent is second about recognizing our blind spots, the sins that cloud our vision, striving by God's mercy to eliminate them. Jesus asks in the Gospel we'll hear this Sunday, Can a blind person lead a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? He adds, Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't perceive the wooden beam in your own? Remove the wooden beam from your eye first. Then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. If we are to become like Jesus through the training of Lent and the discipline of the Christian life as a whole, then we are meant to guide others in Jesus' footsteps on the road that leads to eternal life. But in order to lead others to that narrow way, we need to see clearly. That's why in Lent we first need to examine our conscience to recognize our sins, which Jesus compares to wooden beams in our eyes that prevent us from seeing God in all parts of our life, from noticing what he sees in others and in situations, with God's help to remove those planks. That's the process we call repentance. Just like Jesus cured many blind men in the gospel, so he wants to heal us. It says elsewhere in the gospel that the eye is the lamp for the body, but if the eye is bad, the whole body will be in darkness. And if the light in us is darkness, he continues, how deep will the darkness be? In Lent, Jesus wants us to see everything in his light so that our whole life will be filled with light rather than darkness. And this is essential if we're ever going to set the example for others that he wants us to set. If our eyes and souls are in darkness, we can't help others remove the sins from their eyes. would be like eye surgeons with macular degeneration trying to do delicate corneal surgery. Lent is the time in which we go to Jesus, the divine physician, to be cured of our sins, so that with charity and humility, we can help others rid sin from their lives too. That leads us to the third truth Jesus will teach us this Sunday, which is about true Christian fruitfulness. When we receive Jesus' training to be like him, when we respond to his help to take out the redwoods in our eyes so that we can see clearly and genuinely help others with their problems, not as hypercritical diversions from our own. Then we can become truly transformed people, capable with Jesus of bearing lasting fruit and deeds of love toward God and others. Jesus says, A good tree does not bear rotten fruit, nor does a rotten tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. A good person out of the store of goodness in his heart produces good, but an evil person out of a store of evil produces evil. For Jesus, the point of Lent and the Christian life in general is not so much about getting to bear good fruit, but to help us to become good trees that bear fruit easily and more naturally. It's not about random acts of kindness, but about becoming regularly kind. 
To take an extreme example, we're familiar with the stories of mafioso dons and drug kingpins who profit from others' sufferings and become rich through illegal and immoral means, who at the same time drop off cash and paper bags at their local parish for renovation projects or pastoral outreaches. While giving to the church is obviously better than spending illicit profits in many other ways, such deeds in an isolated way can't make up for the life one leads and are often just a smokescreen coming from vanity or guilty conscience. Jesus wants more. He wants to transform persons. more common example involves those who, for example, are seldom coming to church or praying, or who are living in relationships contrary to the gospel, who nevertheless engage in otherwise laudable care for the poor and needy. They can often point to such good deeds as if they somehow excuse the lack of worship of God or the lack of integration of the faith into all aspects of their life. The fact that they do produce some good fruit is a sign that there's obviously some goodness in them. But their sins and bad fruit show that they are a little like a chimera, part good tree and part bad tree. Jesus in Lent wants to transform the whole of us into a good tree. And how does he do that? He told us on Holy Thursday with the image of the vine and the branches. He said, Just as a branch cannot bear fruit of its own unless it remains attached to the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. In Lent, Jesus wants, us, wants to draft us onto him as branches to the vine, not just partially, but fully. He wants us to remain in him in prayer. He wants us to remain in him in the way we eat and drink and work and recreate. He wants us to remain in him and how we relate to others, loving them in the truth of his own divine love. This is the way to bear abundant fruit that will last. So this Sunday, Jesus will engage us in a consequential conversation. He'll help us to determine whether we really look to him as our teacher, or whether at a practical level we follow worldly gurus, influencers, politicians, authors, celebrities, or family members, friends, or peers more than him. He will give us an eye checkup so that we can ask him through the sacrament of confession to take away the obstacles that blind us and with him, see others as he sees them, and help them to receive from him the same life-giving and life-saving training. He will provide the means by which we will be renewed by him interiorly and thoroughly, as branches on him the vine, so that together with him we may be a good tree bearing good fruit that will last to eternity. This threefold transformation takes place par excellence at Mass. When we listen to the Divine Master as he teaches us in the Liturgy of the Word, when we confess the planks in our eyes and ask his help to remove them, when we recalibrate our vision, behold the Lamb of God receiving his flesh and blood from that vine, so that we, attached to him, might jointly love God and others with all we've got and be formed to lead them as fully trained disciples to the Christ we see. Let us get ready for that consequential conversation. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 